We concluded the previous podcast with a brief discussion of Holy Saturday, a day in which to inhabit the confusion and fear and grief and hopelessness of the first disciples following the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus had appeared to be the answer to all their questions. He had appeared to be their promised Savior and King. But now he was a corpse. Nevertheless, 50 days later, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter would stand before an amazed and perplexed and mocking crowd, and filled with the Holy Spirit, he would announce the following. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Easter Day presents us with a shocking twist in the story. Death is not the end. Death was not powerful enough to hold the Lord of life. And as a result, this life is only the beginning of life. So consider the whiplash of Holy Week for those first disciples. Four days following the triumphal entry, Jesus was arrested. And the next day, he was crucified and buried. So in the span of five days, the disciples went from rejoicing in the presence of their king to mourning the death of all their hopes. And yet on Easter morning, the entire narrative was flipped once again. Yet another 180-degree turn. And over the next seven weeks, over the next 50 days, the disciples became increasingly convinced that all of this was, in some sense, inevitable. Of course God would do it this way. How could we have missed it? How could we not know? We knew who he was. It was never possible in the first place for Jesus to be held by death. So this 50-day period, the time between the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, this is the period we relive during the season of Easter, which is seven weeks long. Seven is the number of fullness and completion. And so in terms of days, this is a seven times seven season, fullness upon fullness. When we talk about Easter, we need to understand that, that we are not talking about a single day. When we talk about Easter, we are talking about a 50-day season. And this is very important to remember because we've just spent 40 days fasting and contemplating our sin and mortality. So it wouldn't make sense for Easter, as the thing for which Lent prepares us, to be limited to one day. The feast ought to exceed the fast. To prepare for the resurrection properly, we spend 40 days fasting, but to respond to the resurrection properly, we spend 50 days feasting, 
50 days rejoicing. N.T. Wright has a wonderful quote about this. He says, I regard it as absurd and unjustifiable that we should spend 40 days keeping Lent, pondering what it means, preaching about self-denial, being at least a little gloomy, and then bringing bringing it all to a peak with Holy Week, which in turn climaxes in Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, and then after a rather odd Holy Saturday, we have a single day of celebration. Easter week itself ought not to be the time when all the clergy sigh with relief and go on holiday. It ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before, with lots of alleluias and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? This is our greatest festival. And so for seven weeks, the church celebrates the resurrection of Christ. Of course, every Sunday of the year is a celebration of the resurrection, but during Eastertide, the great 50 days, the liturgical calendar invites us to focus our attention on the specific implications of the resurrection. The Easter season culminates and concludes by observing the ascension of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I'll I'll touch briefly on both of those observances. So first, the ascension. We cannot afford to overlook the theological and practical importance of the ascension of Christ. Jesus has ascended into heaven in bodily form. His human body, bearing the marks of his suffering, has taken the throne in heaven. There is a human being on the throne in heaven. We could spend hours and days drawing out all the implications of that truth. But Hebrews chapter 4 gives us one major implication. It says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is, ascended, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us therefore hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, the Bible offers the ascension as proof that Jesus understands us and sympathizes with us, and gives us mercy and grace in times of need. Okay, now on to Pentecost, which marks the end of the Easter season. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday long before Christ was born. And and so it's no accident that Easter is a 50-day season. The word Pentecost means 50th. 
The original Jewish festival marked the beginning of the season of harvest, which began annually on the day after the Sabbath following Passover. So that's Sunday. And then extended until the day of Pentecost, the 50th day. Thus, for centuries, faithful Israelites would offer a lamb during the feast of Passover, and then on the third day, Sunday, they would begin rejoicing in the springtime harvest. Out of the death of winter, God had brought new creation. And they kept that feast for 50 days until the day of Pentecost. So this all lines up perfectly. Christ was the Lamb of God, and by his blood our sins are passed over. And on the third day, Sunday, his resurrection launched a new season of springtime harvest for the world. Out of death, God had brought new creation. And so just like the people of Israel, we keep the feast for 50 days until the day of Pentecost. Now, in terms of church history, the day of Pentecost marks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that the formation of the early church was delayed by 50 days. The church was formed immediately following the resurrection. But for those 50 days, the church consisted of a timid and frightened group of disciples who were hiding in an upper room. And so it was that on the day of Pentecost, those early disciples were filled with the Spirit of Christ and transformed into a bold and courageous band of witnesses. Okay, following Eastertide and Pentecost, we enter into what's called ordinary time. This period covers about half the year and ultimately brings us back to the beginning of Advent. Now, the word ordinary does not mean that this season is inferior or less important than the other seasons. Perhaps you remember from grade school the difference between cardinal numbers and ordinal numbers. Personally, I did not remember the difference, but it's, it's pretty simple, really. One, two, and three are cardinal numbers, whereas first, second, and third are ordinal numbers. During ordinary time, we mark each Sunday as the first Sunday after Pentecost, the second Sunday after Pentecost, the third Sunday after Pentecost, and so on. These are ordinal numbers, and so we, we refer to the season as ordinary time. And the emphasis during ordinary time is daily faithfulness. We are taking all the truth we have inhabited throughout the Christian year, and we are turning our attention to living our lives accordingly. What does the life of Christ mean in the church, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace? Ordinary time happens under the banner of Pentecost. Each Sunday during ordinary time is a Sunday after Pentecost. So we are exploring together as a church what it means that we have been formed by Christ and filled with his spirit for mission in the world. Bobby Gross said it well. 
During ordinary time, we settle into the spiritual rhythms of living as disciples of Jesus. We gather in our churches and disperse into our neighborhoods. We worship and we witness. We seek to grow as individuals and we serve the needs of others. We rest our bodies and refresh our souls and we set out to do our God-given work. We engage in these rhythms day in and day out, week in and week out. And with that, uh, we've come now to the end of our podcast series on the Christian year. But before I sign off, I want to offer a few thoughts on the power of the Christian year to change not just you, but the world. And I'm borrowing much of this from a book by Joan Chittister. Our society glorifies excess. Food, sex, alcohol, money, square footage, we could keep going. And in a society that glorifies excess, it's natural for religion to be viewed as restrictive. Religion exists to say no to all the things that make life good. But actually, the Christian life is a celebration of the inherent goodness of living. When we turn to food or sex or alcohol or money or square footage, we're doing that because we have yet to discover the full joy of being human before God. Let's think about this through the lens of work. From the perspective of world history, the five-day work week is a modern phenomenon. Fair labor laws are a modern phenomenon. In the past, if you were a peasant or a slave or an indentured servant, your only hope for any degree of freedom or rest or reprieve was in the exercise of religion. The Sabbath, for instance was a religious observance that humanized society. The Sabbath increased the level of equality by requiring rest for everyone. On the Sabbath, no person, no matter how powerful, was permitted to force another person to work. In the same way, it was the Christian year that structured leisure into the Western world. Every week was punctuated by a Sunday and sometimes an additional feast. And these days were for rest and renewal and the revival of the soul. And so the Christian year has a humanizing effect on the world. Despite what our modern society thinks, the Christian religion has long been a promoter of joy. The church structured into its calendar time for feasting and happiness, time for fasting and care for the poor, time for singing, time for prayer, time for rest and leisure. The Christian year has changed the world in the past, and the Christian year has the power to do so again. By the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Christian year is not about discipline and self-denial for the sake of discipline and self-denial. 
the Christian year teaches us to properly live a life of joy and celebration. It is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, and it is designed to call attention to the greatest truths of our faith. The Christian year reminds us that life is so much more than the drudge of living it. It fills our days and weeks and seasons with divine meaning. It affirms the full range of our emotional experiences. It affirms beauty. It affirms the goodness of a feast. And at the same time, it affirms the exercise of self-control. In short, the Christian year affirms our humanity. It teaches us to live a fully human life.